Hey, hey, it's Ellie. Welcome to Minute Mysteries. You're in the right place. If you're new here, then here's the basic idea. So what I do is I have this treasure trove of detectograms, which is what they also call Minute Mysteries, that are basically logic puzzles. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read three of them, and I'm going to try my darndest to solve them. And once I have a solution or I'm at a loss, then I will read the solution and we will laugh at ourselves together because they're hard. <laughs> so feel free to try and solve the puzzles before me. They are very difficult, at least for me. So yeah, hopefully you guys can uh, do better than I can. So I keep a score of which ones I get right. Two weeks ago, I got all three correct. Last week, I only got two out of three correct. So maybe we can bump our score back up and get another three this week. So we'll see. Sometimes I get none right. Sometimes I get all of them right. It, it depends. <laughs> With no more waffle, let's jump right in. The Jewel Robbery. You say that as your butler called for help, a stranger by the name of Dudley was passing the house and rushed in? That's right, Owings corroborated, as the two men sat in Fordney's study. It was rather late last Friday evening before I was ready to leave town for the weekend, and as Steuben, the butler, wasn't feeling well, I told him to stay upstairs and that I would lock up when I left. I had some diamonds in the safe, so he said he wouldn't leave the house until I returned, continued Owings. About eleven that night, he heard a humming noise and, having the diamonds in mind, ran downstairs to investigate. Finding the well safe open and the jewels gone, he let out a scream for help. Steuben has been with me for years, Professor, and I have implicit faith in him. Did Dudley see anyone leave? asked Vordney. No. The rubber or robbers must have left by the back door, as Dudley was right in front of the house when he heard Steuben's call for help, replied Owings. Both men say the room smelled of cigarette smoke, so the burglars must have just left. Was the back door unlocked? inquired the professor. No, it was closed. It has a device which locks it automatically from the outside when it's pulled to. Well, you'd better swear out a warrant for your butler and Dudley, said Fortney. I'm sure they know where your diamonds are. Long service, you know, isn't necessarily a pledge of loyalty. Why did Fordney so advise Owings? So what seems to be happening here is that Owings is, you know, the owner of a house and he has diamonds in the house and Steuben, who is his butler, supposedly, according to Fordney, works together with Dudley to steal diamonds from Owings. So Dudley was, according to Steuben's uh, story, was just some random guy who came out from outside when Steuben called for help because he thought someone was in the house and trying to steal them. So we need to figure out the hole in the story because Dudley and Steuben tell a story, obviously, to Owings, and we need to we need to poke a hole in that. So yeah, let's let's take a look around. So what what's kind of sticking out to me is how the robbers supposedly left through the back door. According to the story, Dudley was in front of the house when he heard Steuben's call, so he ran in supposedly through the front door. And according to their story, that's why Dudley didn't see the rubbers leave, because they were already out through the back door when he came in the front door. And Steuben, according to what Owings has been told, was upstairs, because when Owings left, he was like, okay, Steuben, stay upstairs until I get back. After he was upstairs, he, you know, heard some humming noise, and then he came downstairs, and Dudley ran in the front room. So I think they were both kind of in the front room. And the robbers, according to them, had already left through the back door. So, what usually happens in these is that Fordney is told a story, and then at the end he kind of asks questions about the story. So the one question that Fordney asks is, was the back door unlocked? So, obviously, this story is like 99% red herrings. Like, <laughs> there's only one issue with the story, and we need to find it. So I don't know if it actually has to do with the back door, because it feels too obvious for some reason. 
but supposedly the robbers went through the back door, but according to Owings himself, the back door was closed and locked. And it was locked from the outside, which is strange. I don't know why they'd lock the back door from the outside, that's really weird. Um, so what's kind of weirding me out right now is that Owens says that the back door has a lock which locks it from the outside. So does that mean that people on the inside can't open the door? <laughs> which, I mean, that's just something I noticed, maybe I'm reading it wrong, but also I don't have any reason to suspect that because that's what Owings is saying and he's not the one that's guilty here. It's an issue in Dudley and Steuben's story and not his story, so yeah. Also, who takes a walk at 11pm? Like, Dudley was supposedly walking right in front of their house when he heard a call for help, and, you know, it was 11? I think I found it. Ooh, okay. So, when Owings left, he was like, okay, Steuben, butler, you stay upstairs and I'll lock up when I go. And then Dudley comes along and is some supposedly some random stranger who just is walking along the street and enters the house when he hears a call for help. But the thing is, the door is locked. The front door is locked. Because Owings left and he locked up. So, <laughs> if Steuben didn't unlock it, which it doesn't say he did, so I don't think he did unlock it, then how could Dudley have gotten in? I think that is going to be my solution, so I'm going to read the actual solution now, and we will see how wrong we were. The butler said that, as he called for help, Dudley, a stranger, rushed in. Owings had locked up before leaving, and, therefore, Dudley could not have rushed in through a locked door. The robbery was obviously framed by Steuben and Dudley. Whew! Good start, guys. Good start. We got it right. Let's go. <laughs> Whew. All right. Let's not gloat for too long. Let's move on to the next one. Before the coroner's inquest. Let's run over your testimony before the inquest opens, said Fordney. All right, replied Curry. About 3.30 on Thursday, I got into the boat in front of my cottage and rowed upstream. About 50 yards below the bridge, I looked up and saw Scott and Dawson going across it in opposite directions. As the two men passed, Scott reached out, grabbed Dawson, and hit him in the jaw. Then he pulled a gun, and, in the scuffle that followed, Scott fell off the bridge. He dropped into the water, but, as the current was strong, by the time I reached the spot he had sunk. When I finally pulled him into the boat, he was dead. Was it a clear day? asked Fordney. Well, it had been showering early in the afternoon, but the sun was shining then. Are you positive Scott got that bruise by hitting his head on the rocks when he fell? The persecution, you know, is going to claim that Dawson hit him on the head with something, then deliberately pushed him off the bridge, commented Fordney. I know he got that bruise from the rocks, stated Curry emphatically. All right, said the professor, but I don't think the jury will believe you. Personally, I'm sure Dawson didn't intentionally kill Scott, but we'll have to have better proof than that if we hope to acquit him. By the way, he continued, be sure to state you knew of the grudge Scott bore Dawson. Why was the professor doubtful the coroner's jury would believe Curry's testimony? So, uh, supposedly, Curry was a witness to what might have been a murder, whether accidental or intentional. Supposedly, there were these two people, Dawson and Scott, they were on a bridge, and he was on a boat in the water, so he could see them from, you know, the water. And, and Dawson punched Scott in the jaw, and he fell off the bridge, and he drowned and hit his head on the rocks and, you know, died. And Curry, who was the witness, saw the whole thing and he fished Scott out of the water, but he was already dead by the time he got to him. So now he's going to go give a testimony to an inquest. And Fortney isn't so sure that his testimony is quite sound. Now, one thing that kind of stuck out to me while I was reading 
was that he was rowing upstream, right? So he was going, if my understanding of streams are correct, he was going against the stream. And so he was, he was going against the current. And so that means if he, you know, rowed towards this bridge, then he would be facing the bridge and the current would be going towards him. So that means when Scott got chucked off the bridge, he would have been pulled by the current towards him, which, I mean, that in itself doesn't disprove anything because that means Curry would have been able to reach Scott because he would have kind of floated towards him. But I do think it's strange how it says, but as the current was strong, by the time I had reached the spot, he had sunk. So do currents make people sink? Don't they just push them along the water? The currents don't necessarily make people sink faster than usual. So obviously he would have sunk. You know, I mean, he did get chucked into the water. So I believe the part about him hitting his head on the rocks, because I can't imagine that this river slash stream is very deep. But like, he wouldn't have sunk any faster due to the currents. If anything, he probably would have been pulled close to the surface. Um, or maybe just, you know, pushed along the bottom of the river. I don't know. But that's just a little strange thing that I found. How it said that because of the currents, he sank. So yeah, I don't know if I'm going to rely on that solution though. So I'm going to keep looking for maybe an alternative solution here. Another strange uh, anomaly, you might say, that I just noticed is that he said that he was 50 yards below the bridge when he saw the Scott and Dawson exchange. Um, so I'm not sure what that means. Does 50 yards below mean that he's like just under the bridge and it's just a, the bridge is 50 yards tall, which I, I doubt. <laughs> Maybe it's just a huge bridge. But, you know, in my head, I was kind of imagining a small bridge because if a murder happened on it and it was a big bridge, there probably would have been other witnesses. Anyway, so does 50 yards below the bridge mean like he was 50 yards away from the bridge and he could see it from kind of below because he was on the water? Or was it just a ridiculously tall bridge that he was underneath? Because <laughs> if it's the latter, then he wouldn't have been able to see what he saw. But since that's probably just a misreading on my part, I'm not going to actually give any credence to that theory. But anyway, I, I think I'm out of ideas. So I'm going to return to my water current theory which has to do with, you know, him sinking quickly, even though there was a current, which, you know, you'd think that a current would kind of push someone along and stop them from sinking down to the bottom. Anyway, so that's what I'm going to go with. Let's look at the solution. Curry could not possibly have looked up while rowing upstream and seen the action he described, which took place 50 yards behind him. So, yeah, so I think by 50 yards below the bridge, it meant he had gone 50 yards past the bridge. So, yeah, I guess I did misread that like I thought I did. So, yeah, that makes sense. I will take that L. I failed, but I will fail gracefully. All right, <laughs> let's go on to the third and last one for today. The Fifth Avenue Holdup What's the hurry? asked Professor Fordney as Baldwin collided with him in the doorway of the office at the back of the exclusive cross jewelry store. I, I was going to help search for the robbers stammered Baldwin as he backed into the office. Well, tell me what happened first, said Fordney, as Dr. Lyman, police surgeon, knelt beside Mr. Cross. There's the special safe for the emerald behind that miniature portrait. I was in here when Mr. Cross entered with two gentlemen, exclaimed Baldwin nervously. He asked me to bring in a tray of diamonds. I set it on the table. Both men pulled guns, and as Cross protested, one of them knocked him unconscious with a blow on the head. The other forced me into that chair, saying... All right, buddy, we'll wait on ourselves. Then he put the diamonds in his pocket. I'm thankful I'm alive. I telephoned headquarters, then rushed out into the store, but they had escaped, concluded Baldwin. So, they got away with the famous cross emerald, eh? Yes, 
The safe door was slightly open. Mr. Cross tried to call my attention to it with a jerk of his thumb as the rubber pocketed the diamonds. Otherwise, they wouldn't have discovered it. How is he, Doctor? Asked Fordney. He never came to, I'm afraid. Those two blows on the head were a bit too much for him. Two blows? Ejaculated Fordney. Are you sure, Baldwin, you weren't hurrying away with the emerald? I'm not. Why did Fordney think Baldwin had stolen the emerald? So, let's see. This is about a jewelry theft where a store was held up by two people. And obviously they had guns and it was like a normal holdup, you know, where they, they took the money. Or they, they, or they took the jewels. So one of the clerks, I believe, of the, the jewelry store was named Baldwin. And he's the one telling the story. You know, he's the one being like, oh yeah, these people held up the store and, you know, I was a part of it. And he was one of the ones being held at gunpoint. But then Fortney's like, actually, you're lying. You probably took the emerald yourself. Firstly, what strikes me, not as weird, but just as a fact, is that he's really suspicious, especially in the beginning, because the story starts with Professor Fordney colliding with Baldwin in the doorway as Baldwin is trying to, quote-unquote, go help search for the robbers. Um, and he's very, you know, he's stammering, he's very nervous, and he's kind of trying to go and escape, maybe. So that is a little bit strange, but I don't think that has to do with his actually being guilty, because... Anyone can be suspicious without actually having done it, you know? Wait a second. Wait, wait a second. Okay. <laughs> so what was stolen in this holdup is this famous emerald that was kept in a wall safe, right? And according to Baldwin, the safe for the emerald is behind a portrait on the wall. So, you know, like all those art heist movies that have stuff hidden behind portraits. That's this. <laughs> So this safe is hidden behind a portrait, but then later he says that the safe door was slightly open. So they could obviously be referring to like the, the door of the portrait being slightly open, but the way he words it is the safe door was slightly open, which means that the portrait cabinet thing was already open and the safe door was also open, which I think is strange because I don't think they would keep the thing open like that. So, all right. <laughs> Let's see. Yeah, okay, I'm confident enough in that safe door theory that I'm gonna roll with it. So, let's just read the solution and see if I'm wrong. <laughs> Baldwin said, Mr. Cross tried to call my attention to it, the safe, with a jerk of his thumb, at a time when Cross was unconscious. Obviously impossible. Baldwin was lying, which there was no reason for doing had he been innocent. Okay, that went way over my head. <laughs> I forgot that he had been knocked unconscious. Yeah, so I knew he had become unconscious. I wasn't quite sure when, because I didn't, you know, read that part. So yeah, dude, <laughs> that makes way more sense than my solution. Oh my goodness. I am blind as a bat. These logic puzzles either make you feel like a genius or make you feel like the stupidest human on the face of the planet. There is no middle ground. <laughs> because like, obviously, once you find the solution, it's, just, it's staring you in the face. It's right there. And you're just like, how? What? Why? <laughs> oh, anyway, I had fun. I got a one out of three, but that was worth it because the second one, which is one of them that I got wrong, I just misread it and I didn't understand the wording, which I'm not saying that as like an excuse. I'm just saying that like, you know, that's the reason that I didn't get it. And the second one, oh, man, I should have read that closer because I did not get the unconscious thing. That was a fun episode, though. Those are some really great stories, and I'm glad that I was able to read those. 
So I just have one thing to say, basically. If you have any feedback, or if you have any other stories you want me to read, or any logic puzzles you want me to try out, or just anything historical in general that has to do with America in like the 20s or something, or like pre-war and World War II, then yeah, please, give me your knowledge. I am pretty ignorant when it comes to these things. I've taken high school history classes, obviously, but seriously, I feel so uninformed. <laughs> so I would love it if you guys would email me at classicmysteriespod at gmail.com. And also, if you haven't listened to one of my normal episodes, go ahead. I'm in the middle of reading a book right now, which is actually so good. So if you start from 22A, which is the first episode of Bulldog Drummond, and keep on listening, it's... Oh man, it's so good. <laughs> so if you like these little mini-stories, go ahead listen to the main episodes, because they're just as good. They're just longer and beefier. <laughs> Alright. So, before I go, I have one thing to say. <clears throat> Don't die. Bye! Bye! <laughs>